Hello, I'm Diana Edwards. This is Our Stories, Conversations on Conscious Living and Dying. All of these stories are courageous journeys of self-awareness and healing, often told by guests who have never been interviewed before. While each story is unique to the individual, these beautiful stories remind us that the human experience is a collective experience. And so, the wisdom you will hear and feel can speak to us all. Welcome to Our Stories. Today's episode, we're going to talk about complicated grief. It's a term you'll hear often, and when referred to with a physical death, it often means that the person going through the grief has the complication of dealing with the fact that maybe it was a violent death, a very unexpected death, perhaps a suicide. It can also be that the person dealing with the grief has some personal trauma issues they've just gone through aside from this death that they're trying to manage. Could be they also have an alcohol or substance abuse problem that is complicating their ability to grieve. There are lots of ways that this term can be looked at with a physical death, And in all of them, I highly recommend you seek professional help. It's such an important journey to work through grief, work with grief. Not that you ever get over the loss of someone, but you can learn to manage and work with grief. And I really do recommend in the case of a complicated situation that the more people you can reach out to for help, the better. But there's another form of complicated grief that I want to talk about that you don't hear mentioned often. And that is grief around someone who doesn't necessarily physically die, maybe down the road they do. But in the case we're gonna talk about today, the grief around someone who leaves your life, perhaps because you need to leave them, or they just up and decide to leave you. And that's a death in and of itself. So today, instead of me just talking about what that looks like, I was really grateful that my friend Char has come to share some of her childhood relationships that were very complicated and that she had to learn to manage at a very early age and how the grief around those relationships unfolded for her. So I want to welcome you today, Shar. Thank you for being here on Our Stories. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's very generous of you to do this because it's like opening old wounds. Mm. (laughs) I mean, we all have them. And There's something I just want to say up front that I really honor is that you immediately looked at this as an opportunity to revisit it for yourself and find maybe a new level of healing to Mm -hmm. work through Mm -hmm. and also to share it with our audience. So I want to honor that this is not necessarily an easy conversation for you to have. Would you mind starting us off by telling us a little bit about the situation around your birth? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was born in East L.A. um, to, you know, kind of dysfunctional Mexican family. And um, my mother was a young, single woman. Um, My father was not interested in being a part of any of it. And I was originally intended to be given up for adoption. But the hospital, for some reason, convinced my mom to take me home. Um, But I actually ended up with my grandmother for the first year and then um, back with my mother after that. And it was a pretty um, hellacious, um, violent childhood. 
So for the first 12 years of your life, you had to navigate basic survival skills, Mm -hmm. which I don't know, I didn't have much understanding of what that looked like. So I imagine you felt it was more instinct and impulse. What what drove you to know how to do the basic things for yourself? Yeah, I I think um, at least on some level that I I came into the world um, ready to fight. Um, Otherwise, there's just no way I would have come out of that. I'm I'm still not actually sure how I came out of it. Um, Yeah, it was very unpredictable, very crazy making. Um, There was generally daily violence, um, um, physical, emotional, and then just a lot of neglect. You know, I think we all just deal with what's on our plate. And I, I had to just figure out how to get through, you know, each day. Well, you know, children come into this world really wanting very simple things. They sound like on paper mm-hmm. to feel safe, mm-hmm. which includes being fed and knowing they have a place to sleep and they can be warm and clothed, etc. They want to be seen. They want you to know that you see them for who they are and that they matter. You didn't have any of those. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have them from anyone. Mm -hmm. At age 12, you said you realized you had to get out of this situation if you were going to survive. What did that look like? How did you reach out to the friends and other family members who all took you in at different times? The uh, tension had really been building for a few years and um, had become completely untenable. And it just so happened that my mother was part of an extreme religious group and there were some youth leaders in this group who uh, came to me one day and very matter-of-factly said to me we think it's time for you to leave home and i honestly can't remember if i was real open about what my life was like at the time or if it was just obvious um i can't imagine that it wasn't obvious that my mother was who she was Um, that she, you know, was, you know, a little unhinged, super extreme. Um, but these, these people offered me a a home. They were both men. One offered me the opportunity to come live with he and his wife. And, um, they had a a baby and he had a, a, like a five-year-old from a previous marriage. So they offered me a room and a place to stay. And he was very much a mentor to me. I kind of think of him as like a track coach, kind of life coach. Uh, and they they took me in for a while. Um, but really, it sort of turned out that they would require me to babysit, um, which, you know, you take a 12-year-old who's been abused all her life and never been sh- modeled love. Um, I, I don't know why you would want that person... <laughs> babysitting your your children. So it wasn't really something I was equipped to do. And when I expressed that, when I, um, you know, pointed out that I was really not skilled at all in being with a baby, that it was not really, I, I didn't have like the emotional capacity for it um, out the door I went. And then that followed a series of friends, other families who could give you shelter at different times until you were able to find your own apartment at 18. You had a series of jobs and going to school. You were managing 
so many levels of your emotional growth, you know, that a, a girl goes through without someone to advise you. And just what strikes me listening to you tell that part, Shar, is how you said that you had the consciousness at 12 or 13 to say, you know, I'm sorry, but this is not something I'm equipped for. I think that's indicative of the awareness that took you on this journey to healing that you're at today. So I I just want to honor that. Now, as you did all this and you got yourself into community college, you did say you were acting out a lot, you know, partying, expressing yourself through a lot of wild behaviors, which, listen, people do that who live in stable homes. You know, that's part of the youth expression But you said you realized you were managing a lot of anger and rage through acting out. Can you say anything about how it felt to be able to release that? Yeah. um, I mean, I I was incredibly rageful. I just, I, um, incredibly rageful. So I was definitely um, self-medicating. And I think, uh, I think like a lot of young people didn't have much of a sense of mortality um, wasn't particularly concerned with my mortality. And so there are just a lot of risks you take without realizing, um, how, you know, how, how often you come close to, (laughs) to losing your life. Um, so I was, yeah, I was pretty, um, pretty reckless. I don't, I, I didn't have a lot of skin in the game, I think was, was the thing. And, and, and the rage, um, the rage and the anger, I think felt, strong and powerful to me, um, certainly over vulnerability. Um, so I liked, I, I prefer, I certainly prefer to be in that position. Um, and I, and I think it was my, my life preserver for so long. Well, that makes sense because depression, you know, if you kind of look at emotions on a scale and I'm a big fan of teaching emotional intelligence, I think it's a game changer for all Mm -hmm. of us at any age. I think understanding what your feelings are, understanding that underneath, and this would be a great discussion we could have a little bit now or maybe later, Mm because I have a feeling you and I could talk for a couple (laughs) hours. But feelings to me really boil down to love or fear. Mm -hmm. And if you think about having a file cabinet, one says love and the other file cabinet drawer says fear, Mm -hmm. you can really take all of the emotions you experience and they will fit in one of those two drawers. Yeah. And that sounds like oversimplification. Mm -hmm. I'm not the only one who teaches this or talks about it this way, but it really brings it back to why you're acting the way you are. And it also shows you compassion for yourself. So in the case of anger, so let's go back to that comment I said about the scale. Mm -hmm. There's depression, which you feel completely powerless. Mm -hmm. People who fall into that often say they just don't have the energy to do anything. They don't have any interest. Anger, at least you're expressing, right? You're motivating yourself. Yeah, it's dynamic. Exactly, it's dynamic. And we don't want to get into, um, you know, oh, it's good to be abusive. Not that kind of anger. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about expressing truth, you know, not hurting yourself or hurting others. Mm -hmm. That's a step. Now, what happens for too many of us is we can get stuck in depression or we can get stuck in anger Mm -hmm. as opposed to moving through them. And what I love is that you identified how important that step was. Maybe it went longer than you wanted, Mm -hmm. but listen, (laughs) from 12 to 21, when your life took a significant turn, that was a pretty good resource for being able to protect yourself. 
and tell people yeah. they didn't have the right to harm you. Yeah. So I think feelings are always a good discussion. And I encourage the listeners to just look back with compassion on their childhood too, or their adulthood. But so much of the healing, if, if revisited in our childhood, kind of lightens up our load through our adulthood. And just say, you know, how did I do that? Why did I do that? And I'll give an example of why it's fear. So if you'll play kind of along with me here. Sure. So you're angry. Give me a situation. Make it up. It doesn't have to be real. What would you maybe be angry about? Uh, being disregarded uh, is a really easy one for me. Okay. So back in your childhood, Ed, someone disregards you and you get really, really angry about mm-hmm. that. If I said, okay, we're going to kind of step it into the file cabinet and figure out which drawer it belongs in. Mm-hmm. What are you really angry about, Char? Not not being seen and loved. Okay. Is there a fear attached to that? Absolutely. What is that fear? I think it's a fear of being alone in the world. It's almost like floating out in space. Like there's there's no one to catch you and support you and what is your fear if there's no one out there when you're floating in space to catch you what what is this horrible thing you could fear happening oh i guess death i think so Mm -hmm. i think that's where it leads to Mm -hmm. so thank you for playing along with me there but that's how you can have uh kind of fun even doing with it It, it, say a parent wants to do this with your child they come Mm -hmm. home from school and and they're angry, maybe not the minute they come home and they need to process that anger and express that anger to you about how they're frustrated or whatever. But then when you teach them the skill of doing just a little bit of what we did right now, Mm -hmm. it takes the power away of that emotion in the sense that it's out of control. Now you know. You know it goes in the fear drawer. You know your ultimate fear is of death. So down the road, you have a choice. Do you continue to just get angry at people who do this to you Or do you say, I'm actually going to start looking. Now, you didn't do this at 12. Don't get me wrong. But later, like, I'm going to look at this fear of death, this fear of what would happen. And when we look into our fears very often, we realize, no, I I have the resources to find someone else who could come find me when I'm falling in space or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So that's why, and again, thank you for the little mini exercise we just did. That's why I work so hard for people to try to simplify it and to put it in these two file cabinets. We can always go back, take it out, look at it again, talk about it. Mm -hmm. But it starts helping you go, wow, I spent 90% of my day having feelings that were in the fear file cabinet. You know, maybe it's just frustration, but frustration boils down to fear of something, you know, being able to get something done in time, you'll get fired, whatever the frustration is not getting my kid to school on time, getting frustrated. He might get in trouble. That means I'm going to look bad as a mother, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm just a big advocate of the healing power of little exercises like that. Plus they train you to start looking at all of your emotions in a much lighter, easier way. So thank you for that side. (laughs) So I want to jump ahead a little bit here and talk about what I was so profoundly moved by when you shared it with me. So after all these years of kind of being lost and in the survival mode and doing honestly amazing things to keep yourself fed and cared for, you did what I call, uh, I like to think of it as you found healthy parents. 
but you found them in such an interesting way. At 21, you decided you wanted to be an airline stewardess. And you reached out to a really cool airline that is no longer around. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, she went right kind of to the top of, you know, the airline industry. so. So would you tell us a little bit about that? Because you picked them to kind of be in charge of setting healthy boundaries and rules for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a very high standard. Um, I went to, they call them cattle calls of 500 people. And of 500 people, they chose 25. So very high standards, very high standard of service. Um, it was a very high-end clientele. It was all celebrities and Wall Streeters, rock groups, uh, royalty, um, and so it was a great way to sort of rise to the occasion um, and just be a part of something great and interesting. Um, I got to fly with a bunch of the NBA teams and some baseball teams. And it was just a it was a very um, the payoff was pretty immediate in the um, pride that we were able to take in the job that we did. Um, but the standards were high all around. And, you know, I think just like having parents, there was, um, you know, sometimes overly high expectations or even a little criticism. Um, but definitely that accountability was there. I love that because knowing they were very selective in who they chose, Mm -hmm. you had this sense of real self-esteem building Mm -hmm. to watch yourself not only walk into a world that was completely foreign to your yeah. childhood. I mean, you were telling me like you'd never seen champagne and all these things you were supposed caviar. to serve. Yeah, caviar that you're serving <laughs> on this airplane. And I think it put you in touch with something that to this day I admire about you. And I want at some point for you to mention what it means to you. And that's beauty. Mm. You create, Yeah, I've, I've known you now almost 20 years. You create beauty wherever you go mm-hmm. in the simplest little flower arrangement, if you bring someone a gift, there's so much thought and beauty in how you wrap it or present it. It's just always, I don't know, it always touches me. And I think beauty is really akin to spiritual spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think beauty is all there is. And that can encompass, um, you know, a lot of things. But, you know, this, this world is not an easy place to be. And, and clearly we see that because some of our friends and loved ones just can't stay. And I think um, I may have come close to feeling that way over the years, especially when I was younger. Um, but it, it's in finding the beauty in the moments, finding the beauty in your friends or shared experiences or in a little caviar. It's these moments of beauty that um, make it all worth it. And it really can just be the way the sun feels on my face or um, the smell of the ocean. Uh, But you just, I have to seek it out in order to keep myself uh, engaged in a good way. So it brings you a wholeness. And you know, when I'm interviewed and people say, well, what's the one, you know, we always like the one takeaway on how I can handle my grief. I always have the same answer. And it's nature but that's because nature is, in my opinion, beautiful mm-hmm. 24 hours a day, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. seven days a week, Yeah. no matter what season. You're connecting with a divine beauty. Yeah. The gift is always there. Exactly. Yeah. The gift is always there. Really beautifully said. So again, fabulous step you took. You just said, I had enough of the wild child acting out. 
I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to get myself healthy parents that care how I look and, you know, how I show up, which is what your bosses did. Mm-hmm. And you met them there. I always had this sense that I needed to be moving forward. My, my high school tried to prevent me from graduating from high school because I didn't have guardianship. But somehow I knew, maybe because they wanted to take it away, I knew I needed to have that. And I knew after high school that other kids were going to college. Um, I wasn't sure exactly how to do that, but I knew I needed a piece of it. So somehow I always knew that I needed to be moving forward and um, gaining something new. I think that is definitely one of the key survival techniques Mm -hmm. that you employed. And I think if we can remember that when I'm stopped or stuck, find a way, find some way, even if it's a baby step to Mm -hmm. move forward. That's beautiful. Now I'm going to jump ahead again Uh because we have a lot I want to talk about. So that job ended, they, they, you know, this was a very different time, right? This was in the era of all those shows around lifestyles and the rich and famous and so forth. And that's no longer uh, part of kind of the collective anymore. Mm -hmm. But that airline um, closed Mm -hmm. and you went on and did other things and moved and set up a new life for yourself. And then you came up against deciding to be in a full-time relationship, have a child. And that brought up what I want to talk about next, which is interjected voices. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're called interjected, at least when I was in graduate school, (laughs) (laughs) which was many moons ago. But They're voices in our heads. And again, another thing I always like to work on with clients, and they anyone can do this by themselves, and I encourage them to do so, is look at your belief systems. They're connected to your interjected voices. So an interjected voice is a voice in your head that might say, You can do it. You can do it. And or you're too stupid. You'll never, you'll Mm -hmm. never be able to do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And we all have them. And we usually are operating on them unconsciously. And that's why they have power over us. And that's why so much of the work I do is called mindful awareness or conscious awareness. Because the more we make something aware, the more it loses power over us. And we either can just coexist with it, work with it, or we can change it or transform it and heal it. So when people want to take some time it's an, it's an ongoing process because maybe an interjected voice you had at age three is gone and you now have another one. And you might have 20 of them, you might have two of them. <laughs> but I guarantee you they have more power over the choices and the way you behave than you may know. But what I love is you had two interjected voices that you were conscious of that mm-hmm. were going to present themselves as a block, one of them, mm-hmm. and also kind of as a support. Mm-hmm in this next phase of your life and interestingly who they came from the same person. Yeah. So would you mind sharing us a little bit about the voices that uh, let's call them, I don't know. What do you want to call them? Um, (laughs) Yeah. The rules to live by. Yeah. They were both, both from the same person, one pretty limiting and one, I think that made all the difference for me. Um, Because my family was so dysfunctional and there were no healthy child-parent relationships in my family, like for a very long time, (laughs) Um, my aunt 
made it very clear to me from a real young age that I really should not procreate, um, that it just was not a great thing for our family, that we shouldn't continue the lineage. Um, and I, and I think in my aunt's mind that because we were such a dysfunctional family, that the way to break the pattern was to, um, not have children. Um, so that, that stuck with me for a long time. Um, and I, you know, I, I looked up to her, um, and I believed her. I believed the things that she taught me. And she taught me a lot of great things. She widened my horizons. She showed me the world was bigger than I thought it was. Um, so that was sort of the limiting belief that she gave me. Um, but she also let me know from a very young age that my life was my responsibility. And she made it very clear that I wasn't going to get to grow up and turn around and blame my mother for whatever my life became, that my life was my responsibility. And that's a heavy message to hear at a young age. But again, I believed her. And I think that was was really important. So while I may not have always um, made the most graceful decisions, um, definitely in the back of my mind, I knew it was my responsibility. My life was my responsibility. So you're carrying these two voices consciously aware of them, when you find out at 34 years of age, you're pregnant. And kind of another twist to this is that 34 years of age was the age that you last saw your mother. So what was that like? Yeah, I think, you know, I think by 34, um, I had um, gotten quite comfortable with my life. Things had really stabilized. Um, I was working and, and really everything was about me. And I quite liked that. <laughs> well, I think you quite deserved that, to be sure, honest. <laughs> sure. You know, the idea of becoming a, a parent for me um, was going to be a very big job. It, it, it meant the end of my single self. It meant the end of my life being about me. And I saw that as an immense responsibility. Um, so I started to, to grieve the loss of my single self um, and of my life being what I felt like doing from day to day or, you know, from month to month um, or even just making long-term plans. It's, it's, it, it all changes. Um, so I, you know, I have a baby and my life is no longer about me. I love how you said <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. She said to me, I can't be in charge of this person. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of, because I think as in any relationship, you need to bring your best self to the table. And so there is this sudden realization of, oh my God, <laughs> am I my best self yet? Like, what is it I can bring to the table in this? Am I ready for this? Have I figured all of these things out? Have I resolved my own emotional baggage? Um, because you kind of want to have those things tidied up before you start, um, you know, how, overseeing another human being. I just appreciate, Char, that you were so conscious of that because a lot of people look at having children as I'm going to stuff the pain of my childhood away mm -hmm. and I'm going to give birth to this wonderful new baby and it's all going to be fresh and new mm. and I'm going to do it perfectly mm -hmm. because it wasn't done perfectly for me and I know how to change it when we really don't, if we haven't done any of the healing right. journey that's required. 
Or as you and I were talking about, you know, how many books did you read on parenting? Most people don't read too many. They think because they physically birthed this child Mm -hmm. or adopted this child consciously that they somehow are imbued with this understanding and knowledge of all the right things that need to be done. And yet they have no preparation for how this child is going to trigger you every step of the way. Anything that was unmet in your life is going to be, you know, brought up when you look at that child wanting that thing that maybe you didn't get. And now you're supposed to give it to them. So this pregnancy opened a really interesting chapter and endor. And we're going to take a break right now. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the conscious parenting journey you went on. (laughs) 